Hello, I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author, with a special folklore podcast bonus feature. This is the first of three interviews which I recorded with authors appearing at this year's UK Ghost Story Festival, held in February at the Museum of Making in Derby. In this recording, I chat with screenwriter and novelist Stephen Volk, whose screenplays include Ken Russell's Gothic and William Friedkin's The Guardian, and for television, Afterlife and Ghostwatch. Enjoy the interview. Uh, so, Stephen, welcome to the Folklore Podcast. Um, we're here on tour, if you yeah. like, at the... Um, in the interview room. The, <laughs> yes, we are, we are in a, a rather echoey, empty room at the Museum of Making yeah. in Derby for the UK Ghost Story Festival. It is a little bit like a police interview room, you're right. We'll, we'll try and not make it a formal interview. I, um, I deny any responsibility, but <laughs> well, I've done that for many a year. <laughs> There's always culpability for something. <laughs> So we're here as part of a weekend of events, talks, panels, workshops, talking about ghost stories, obviously um, a genre that you work with quite a lot. Why do you think people are so endlessly fascinated with the ghost story as a genre? Um, I think there's... It's a big question. I think there are a number of levels to it. Um, One is, it's a big question. What happens after we die? So it's a kind of metaphysical question. I think nobody knows the real answer to whether you're a scientist, Christian, any other belief, whatever, or somewhere in the grey area in the middle. Nobody knows for sure what the answer to that is. So that's one aspect, is it's a way of dramatising the unknown uh, that we carry with us. Mm-hmm. Big question mark, if you like, that we carry with us all our lives. Um, but I think on a, on a creative level or on a... Um, literary level if you like i think the distinction of the ghost story is it gives us a kind of frisson unlike any other genre i think in a way um and that's that's the only way i can explain why i think of myself as a skeptic stroke agnostic stroke humanist if you like um but the ghost story as a form really appeals to me, the shape of the stories you can tell with ghosts in them. Yes. And I think the appeal to me to write them is that ghosts can be a metaphor for all sorts of things. Yes. Mostly for me, and, and I'm doing a talk this afternoon so I'm kind of rehearsing my talks about <laughs> is that often when I wrote a ghost story, the ghost kind of um, is a projection of what's missing in the character seeing the ghost. So it's very personal to the point of view that you're turning the ghost from, and it often is a externalisation of their psychology, and that's what appeals to me about playing in that particular sandpit, I guess. You became interested in this field at an early age, from what I gather. Yeah. Forrest Ackerman was responsible. Oh, yes, the famous monsters of film, then. Yes. Well, yes. I, I said this in in, a, in an interview yesterday that I remember. Um, when I had my pocket money, I used to go on a Friday afternoon down to the local newsagent and buy Spider-Man comic or, you know, X-Men comic. And then I graduated from that to Marvel classics, you know, like White Fang or 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and, you know, comics, famous novels, but in comic form. Um, and then from that, I, I used to see this uh, import from America, famous monsters of Filmland. Of course, at the age of six or seven, um, I'd never seen any of these films, but the stills from them and the illustrations on the cover were like, 
wow, what's going on here? So uh, it kind of lit the blue touch paper of my imagination just to see these stills of a goggle-eyed Peter Lorre or, um, or just these, you know, uh, Frederick March as Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and these kind of things. So long before I saw any of these films, these still images from the magazine got my imagination going. And then I, I guess I got into, as most of us did, the Fontana book of ghost stories and pan books of horror yeah. stories, that kind of thing. And then, you know, there's still a great uh, place in my heart for stories like uh, Ringing the Changes or, uh, um, you know, um, uh, Monkey's Paw is another one. Yes. You know, those those yeah. classics are, are yeah. really close to my heart, you know. Yeah, yeah. Where do you think the genre works best? You talk about um, ghost stories and horror stories there. Um, is the psychological side far more powerful than the direct horror side in a story for you? Uh, it is for me, and it's funny how many talks at this ghost story festival are talking about ambiguity in the ghost mm. story. Is it real, or does the ghost exist? And in a, in a way, I can see why that's a discussion, but for me, the, the psychology of, of people and the parapsychology is always a kind of Venn diagram. Yeah. It always kind of one melts into the other. So I, I don't believe this thing, or I try not to have in my stories, oh, we can put that in a box that's psychology, or we can put that in a box that says ghosts. It's kind of like, I like to muddy the waters in between the things, because I just, I think I like to have the audience or reader thinking about what, bring what they believe or disbelieve to the story, and it can work both ways. So if you occupy that kind of grey area in between, it, it lets the observer decide for themselves, mm. I think, really. It's what gives me the satisfaction. I yes, think. yeah, yeah. Rather than either or. Yeah, yeah I can see that. You've had a, a, a rich and varied career in writing. So you've written for TV, you've written for film, you've written short stories, you've, you've written copy advertising at the start yes. of your career, you know, a, a whole range of things, possibly not, not so many ghosts in that one. Yeah. Um, now, you are probably best known for having penned Ghostwatch, and I don't want to labour this point. <laughs> I, I will not labour this point because everybody talks to you about that and not about other things. <laughs> but I want to touch on it, and it's only fair, I think, for one point, and, and that is that the whole premise behind that is that it's based on events that allegedly actually happened. So what I'm actually interested in here is, is more whether that is a good source of material for you in your writing. Do you think the based on a true story, and that's a very broad term in itself, provides a different sense of material that you can work with to stuff that you just generate from your own imagination? Um, I think that, um, that, you know, answering the thing about based on a true story kind of thing, and I know that you come from a background of, you know, legend and folklore, mm. and you know, which, which I, I, I love all, all, all that stuff, obviously. Um, and I do find material that sets you off on different directions in, you know, pages of Fortean Times or whatever, or <laughs> whatever, yeah. you know, other, other magazines and sources may apply kind of thing. Um, but, but right across the board, some, some little thing, a sentence here or an idea here can um, just meld with, with something that you've read elsewhere or something in the back of your mind and set it in a different direction. Not necessarily a story idea, but a piece of research, you know, I love absorbing all this research and somebody comes out with stories, somebody doesn't. Um, so, uh, 
actual things that I think, oh, that is a story I want to dramatize, ha has actually happened in a number of instances. Um, I, long ago, before I wrote Ghostwatch, I wrote a screenplay about the Fox sisters. Yes. They were originators of uh, spiritualism in America, and it was the kind of life story of the three sisters. Never got made, but I subsequently rewrote it as a play, which was uh, successful in a small way. So I did get it realised. Um, but that was based on a short, uh, based on a true story. Um, I also did something uh, that was a script called Superstition, which was based on the. I don't know if you remember that Carol Compton was a Scottish nanny who went to Italy and she was accused of uh, attempted murder of the children in her yes. care. And she was called a, a witch. So that, you know, I kind of that, that's a case in point where I saw these headlines saying Scottish nanny accused of being a witch in Italy. You know, serves yeah. two years for attempted murder. I thought that interesting. <laughs> so it was one of those things that I wrote down like five pages mm -hmm. and within like two weeks uh, my agent had got a producer interested which never happened you know. Yeah it's funny I wanted to, and I wanted to touch on superstition actually as well because that that's uh, a, a case where you're working with material that, that's often it is problematic to mm -hmm. a lot of people people yeah. who were involved in the case. Yes yes. Is, does that make the process difficult and the research it was, process? It was difficult? immensely difficult, I have to say. Uh, partly because um, I went to Scotland and I spent a day or two with Carol herself years years uh, after the events. Uh, got got to know her in a couple of days. Very sweet and lovely uh, woman. She'd signed over her rights, you know, to her story to the producer. So I felt a certain emotional obligation to tell her story as accurately as possible. But what happened to um, cut a long story short is as the script developed, which I always pitched as kind of a modern day version of The Crucible, okay? Mm. So it's about false accusation and it's about the hysteria of the crowd and, and the media, but in a modern setting about witchcraft. That's what I found intriguing about it. But increasingly the producers were saying, Oh, let's have a supernatural element in this. Let's make it a supernatural story, or it'll get funded if it's a supernatural story. I said, but Carol Compton, I've sat there and told her that I'm going to tell her story as well as I can. I can't turn it into a supernatural story, so because that's exactly what she's claiming it wasn't. Yeah. Um, so in the end, I had to back off it. I had to back off it and said, I'm not going to do any more rewrites of that nature. You know, a rare moment of integrity. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that. You know, that, that, I suppose, illustrates the danger of uh, kind of a, uh, approaching a true story in a way. Yes. But I also yes. found it was quite grueling in that I had to um, face the fact that this girl had spent time in prison. You know, for two years of her life she was in an Italian prison, which wasn't very pleasant. And I, I found that quite draining uh, mm. as, a, as an act of writing, you know knowing that someone had gone through what I'm writing. You know, maybe if there was a, a bigger distance of time or I hadn't actually personally met the person involved, it um, be different. Let's talk about afterlife as well, sure. because um, that obviously has a, a very well, heavy... I to answer that without saying anything about Ghost Rock. was good. I'm <laughs> impressed. I'm impressed. We'll keep all of that in as it is. Yeah, absolutely. I told you I wasn't going to labour the point. <laughs> There's obviously a very big spiritual element to afterlife um, and, and the whole kind of um, mediumship area is, is one that can be quite divisive for people, I think, as to whether these people are genuine 
Absolutely, whether these yeah. people are fraudulent and are looking to con other people, yeah. whether they're well-meaning but misguided. And those opinions vary greatly from person to person. Did that make it difficult to work with the material to try and not put any particular views across in that way? Um, I tell you what was what was difficult it was um, again it comes back to my idea that ghost stories because it was is kind of ghost story and it, it, well it's literally a ghost story mm. through through a different kind of personality um, that's what appealed to me about it but people you know and I, as I said the appeal for me is the metaphor of the ghost story mm. and the journeys that the characters go on and the ghosts being projection of their psychology etc etc. Um, where it came from is the best way for me to um, describe it was going when I was researching the aforementioned Fox Sisters mm. play and I was working with the director we went to a clairvoyant meeting in Bath near where we lived uh, where I and the, uh, the director both live and um, the clairvoyant in the meeting picked one of us out and um, gave a message we were talking about it afterwards, and I didn't actually credit this clairvoyant at all with, with any actual ability. But it did spark in my mind, this was around early 90s, about 94 we put the play on. Uh, it did spark in my mind, what if you go to one of those clairvoyant meetings and someone were to pick you out and say something that was incredibly meaningful for you, and you also intuited that they weren't a charlatan, that they were actually telling the truth. And that became the kind of catalytic scene in Afterlife, episode one, that gets the whole ball rolling because Robert, the psychologist, just takes his students to show them the psychic on stage and it's Alison and um, and then the two characters kind of lock horns and that's the, that's the kind of driver for the whole series. So it was sparked, funny enough, by the other project and doing research on the other project. But, but it came from thinking, oh, this person comes across as a charlatan, but what if they weren't? What if you met someone that claimed the same things, mm. but they were actually super convincing as a yeah. person, you know? <laughs> What's your favourite genre to write in? Film, TV, literature, book? Um, it varies. It's a little bit, a bit like Apocalypse Now, where Martin Sheen says, when I'm here, I want to be there, when I'm there, I want to be here. Yeah. It's exactly that, which I'm convinced that, that uh, Francis Coppola was making a comment about shooting a film. Or <laughs> 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 oh, the difference between writing it and shooting yeah. it, probably. Yeah. Being home, comfortable, and actually shooting a film. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, you know, there's pros and cons. When you're writing something for the screen, you've got all the lots of other people having control of what you do and having an input which can be incredibly frustrating but also very kind of liberating in yeah. that you know to have the input of wonderful actors and say costume designers production designers who are wonderful problem solvers apart from anything um you know can actually improve your work if, tr if truth be known but also it can be it can erode it as well when you get so many notes that that it sometimes loses any resemblance to what you intended in the first place. Um, most often in feature films where the director kind of takes over the creative control and it often becomes his or her um, vision that counts much more than the start point. Um, on the other, on conversely, when you're writing a piece of prose, a book or a book of short stories, um, you have total control over that within reason. I mean, you have editors making comments or, or whatever, but by and large, um, uh, what you say goes 
So there's yeah. the benef benefit of that and the kind of privacy of that. As I get older, I kind of like the idea of just kind of mentally taking the phone off the hook and just mm. just plunging into the story or immersing yourself in what the story needs to be and it comes out as it needs to come out and you're in control of it. You know, there's a certain... I'm kind of at peace with that as well. Yes. So yes. there's not the kind of excitement of something happening on screen, which I'm still absolutely addicted to as much as I was when I was a kid. You know, mm -hmm. the big screen is still an exciting thing. Yes. And I love cinema and I love cinema to the extent that, you know, I know 99% of what I do will fall on deaf ears and never see the light of day. But the 1% the chance of it actually happening is still enough of a roll of the dice to get up in the morning, yes. you know. Yeah. But, yeah. but Short stories and novellas and that kind of thing you have control over. So there's, I like. I, truth is, I like swapping between the two, and 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 I think the the prose work keeps my sanity a bit more. It's, it's nice to have that chance, I guess. Um, if you had to pick one of your pieces of work to say that that is the best representation of your output and what you're most pleased with, oh gosh, that's what would tough. It be? Um. <clears throat> I think on the screen it would probably be Afterlife, mm -hmm. probably because it re represents a really good working relationship with the people involved and I think it most represents what was on the page and I think if you read the script and then you saw how, how it appeared on the screen it's more or less exactly, exactly what, we want, what came from the page um, and my intention, you know, in terms of the actors the way the actors played it and everything, they, they just hit everything. And I, and I felt it broke a lot of taboos in my working relationship, for instance, working with actors and working with their, their feedback and their kind of needs. I realized that I could deal with that. I wasn't terrified of, of being caught out by, by something, you know, so that was a great learning curve. And in terms of books, I think uh, I'm very proud of the Dark Masters trilogy. It started with a book called Whitstable, which was... Um, kind of a, a novella, standalone novella, which was about Peter Cushing. Um, and then they did a second novella about um, Alfred Hitchcock as a little boy. Mm -hmm. And there seemed to be a little bit kind of going, ongoing theme between the two of those. And people were saying, well, what's the third one going to be? And I thought, oh, bloody hell, I can't think of the third one. Uh, and people suggested, oh, it's going to be Christopher Lee, or it's going to be Boris Karloff. And I thought, no, it's not going to be another actor. And I didn't know who it's going to be. So years went by. And it was kind of like actor, director, and I thought, I've got to have a writer as the third part of the trilogy. And um, I'd been working on a project about Alistair Crowley with the BBC that fell on deaf ears at the end. Uh, and I didn't want to write a novella from his point of view because he's such a, a multi-layered and mercurial character. I didn't mm. feel I could do it. I couldn't really put my brain into his skull, if you know what I mean, to write from his point of view. But I thought I could write from Dennis Wheatley's point of view. And the juxtaposition of Dennis Wheatley and Alistair Crowley seemed really interesting. Uh, and I set it towards the end of uh, uh, Alistair Crowley's life, 1947, uh, in Hastings. Uh, and he calls on Dennis Wheatley for help, having helped him uh, with the research for The Devil Rides Out. So, so all those things seem to come together in the third novella. And I'm, I was pleased with how the three sat together in one volume. About other people's material, what what for you works within the ghost psychological thriller genre as as being standout material? And... Um, oh, it's always difficult to think of things when people. 
trying to think of something now for the benefit of the tape, <laughs> as they say. Um, I should just say no comment. Um, there's a recent book, uh, Lucy McKnight Hardy uh, has written a couple of great books. One is called Dead Relatives, a book of short stories, and um, they're very kind of eerie. And you know, once in a while you read a book and you think, this is actually not just a great book, but it's actually um, educated me about how to tell stories differently. Um, uh, there's another, Mariana Enriquez is another writer uh, um, who's, who's written kind of uncanny stories that you, you read them and you think, oh, this is a different way to do this stuff, different way to tell them. But uh, Lucy in particular, I, um, I dropped her a line to say this is really kind of revelatory in the, I think what it was is how little do you have to do in a story to make it spooky? Mm. Uh, and I often apply that to a story especially a horror story, how little do you have to do to make it horror? Yeah. Not how much do you have to do, how little you have to do. Yeah. And that's a kind of rod for my own back in a way. But those are the, those are the stories I, I find satisfying because I think yeah. you, leave, you leave a little gap for the reader to bring to it. That's uh, a very I good think, point. Yeah. It's a very good point because and they were speaking in the panel, we've just come up from actually, weren't they, about the haunting of Hill House. Yeah. Uh, and I guess that's a prime example yeah. of that. Where, you actually, if you think about the original movie version of that, you see virtually nothing other than the characters. I've never read it, but but apparently it's written from Eleanor's point of view, isn't it? I've not read it either. I've I've seen the you know various visualized versions of yeah, it, yeah, yeah. And, and I guess the original movie is is kind of the classic one. Yeah, so. and I think what what seems to be chilling from what people said in that panel that we were just at mm. is that the house has a kind of consciousness yes. that it asserts on people, yeah. which is a spooky idea. Yeah, right? it is. And, and it's nice to have recommendations <coughs> of, of other material as well, because there's kind of stock answers to that question, isn't there, where everyone goes, well, of course, M.R. James is a classic. And, and of course, M.R. James is a classic, yeah. uh, and others as well. And it was really nice to see that there was a reading of Carnacki uh, yeah. Yeah. over this festival as yeah. well, because I've always thought that Carnacki was a great representation. And really, I don't think enough people know about Carnacki. I've always loved Carnacki from The Rivals of Sherlock Holmes when mm. it was the play by um, Donald Pleasance. But when you hear the story done aloud, you notice that there are no alternative words for hoof. <laughs> <laughs> and you just hear too many that terrible gobbling neigh is said rather a lot you know? <laughs> it's funny when you hear a story read out loud that you notice things that you never do in print yeah but I do like I, I do like the idea that you can have any dinner party that just when you've told enough of your story you just go right off you go then and you just send your guests away right, that's it I've done <laughs> yeah I think that's one of the appealing things about the golden age of ghost stories is they they had these um kind of parties and after mm. dinner they'd sit back and have the port and, and tell ghost stories. I think it's terribly appealing and I think one of the first stories, short stories I wrote was exactly that, mm. was men in a club, you know, you know, knocking back the port saying, you know, and, and, and it, I did a kind of um, a school ghost story called uh, The Latin Master, that's what it was, and it's like, oh, I Tell us that story about you know so and so. Yeah. It's it's just something we all we all love going back to. It's kind of campfire tales. Yeah, it is. I think there should be more of that. Something. I mean, I, I guess Mark Gatiss has, has has done a fair yeah. bit for, the for trouble getting with, that. The trouble idea, is, you know, having thought about this a bit and, and tried it a bit, is that how do you do that without it being kind of cliche and and yeah. uh, and not just cliche but actually comforting? Mm. I think that's the problem. Yeah. Is that when you do 
You've got to remember that M.R. James in his time was not writing period ghost stories. I no. mean, he was sometimes alluding to things from the past, mm. obviously in a ghost story. But by and large, they were set in the present day to mm. him. Yeah. Um, you know, so the idea that we import that as period ghost stories is not really what his intention was. His intention was to set them in the here and now to the world that he inhabited, which to us seems like a very cloistered, male-centric world, you know, that is quite bizarre. Yeah. But um, but to him, it's probably as commonplace as going to Asda. Yes. You know what I mean? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah. so there's a comfort in going back to M.R. James, which, I'll be honest, frustrates me about the BBC always going back to M.R. James. Mm. It's kind of like there's not just one person writing ghost stories. Even if you say we're only going to do the best ghost stories, mm. you know, there are a lot of other authors of, of that era. You know, mm. there's Aikman, there's Dickens, there's uh, loads of people, Daphne du Maurier, yeah. you know, and, and a lot, you know, a hell of a lot of female authors that are not acknowledged. Yeah. That they, I, could, they could spread the net a little wider. In my yeah. Opinion. I mean, Angela Carter's written some classic material. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Deserve it as well. We should perhaps start a petition for, for yeah. other. But there's some great one's done over the years that, that are, uh, have been done in anthologies in the 70s like uh, is it Elizabeth Bowen the Dreaming Demon Lover who wrote yes. the Demon Lover I can't remember yes it could have been um, you know and they they were done in anthologies funnily enough in the 70s where you could have standalone stories it, wasn't there a series called The Frighteners and things like yes. that or Haunted, yeah. Haunted and you know, uh, supernatural, and you could have individual spooky stories that lasted yeah. 50 minutes. Yes. Which are very difficult to. I know Guillermo del Toro's done Cabinet of Curiosities. Yes, and, and I guess um, American Horror Story is. is but that's uh, a, as a an anthology. anthology. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it is, but American Horror Stories, yeah. the, the later version, yeah. is an anthology where every, every yeah, story yeah, is yeah. self contained, yeah, and I yeah, guess yeah. that works on that as well. Yeah. Well, things come around yeah. and don't talking yesterday about the fact that a lot of it is kind of fashion and uh, you know there's a streamers have changed the fashion mm. for certain things being novelist quotes novelistic which basically means a serial story rather mm. than story of the week you know yeah yeah okay let's wrap up uh, and just find out what you're working on at the moment oh okay um, well I'm glad to say that I've had a an, uh, I'll be having a new book of ghost stories out later this year but I can't announce who the publisher is yet, okay. unfortunately, but you will hear through social media because I've been crowing about it at the time. So I'm really pleased at that. What pleases me about that is I've written four or five new ones to go with some reprints in that book. Um, the new ones I'm really pleased with as well as giving uh, a new airing to the old ones. But I wanted to see what they look like side by side in a way because I think they represent, as you said at the beginning, I've delved a lot into ghost stories over the years and I kind of want to see what comes through when I put these different stories together, what kind of what kind of overall picture they have of my approach to ghost mm -hmm. stories. So I'm really interested in this coming out later on. Excellent. Um, yeah. We should look forward to that one. If people want to find out more about what you uh, do and hear your announcements when you begin crowing okay. about this. So question. you can look at www.stephenbolk.net. That's my website, but I'm on Twitter and Facebook at the moment. Who knows what the future will bring? <laughs> we'll take it day by day. Okay. At the moment, it's still yeah. going strong. <laughs> Stephen, thank you so much for taking the time. Okay, no comment. <laughs>